Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. This is John O'Leary, and so happy to have you here joining me in the Live Inspired Movement. On every Live Inspired podcast, I have amazing guests joining me to share their story, their successes, their failures, their lessons, and their life so that we all can learn how to better live inspired together. After today's episode, make sure to check out the show notes at johnolearyinspires.com. Once you're there, you can check out past episodes, my inspirational videos and blogs, and connect with me on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or LinkedIn or Instagram. It's our Live Inspired movement, and it is growing. And it would be my honor to have you share in our inspirational thoughts and challenges throughout the week. So go ahead, visit me at johnolearyinspires.com. I'll say it one more time. Here we go. johnolearyinspires.com. My friends, today I am joining you from sunny San Diego, and I'm here for a client event. While I've got some downtime, I wanted to take just a moment to get clear on how to intro my next guest. I am so absolutely blown away by the opportunity and wanted to find just the right words, but I think the simpler, the better sometimes. So let's get right into this amazing conversation. Have you ever heard of, here it comes, Tuesdays with Maury? Yeah, the amazing memoir about a student who reconnects with a dying teacher to capture his life lessons. You heard of that one? I'm assuming and I'm guessing that the answer has to be yes. Tuesdays with Maury is the top-selling memoir of all time, and it's been translated into more than 40 languages. It's even been made into a movie by Oprah Winfrey. The esteemed author, Mitch Album. he joins us today. Mitch will share what that book means to him, why he decided to write it, the biggest lesson he learned from Maury, and how it played out in his life since Maury's passing. My friends, today's episode is an awesome peek behind the curtain of one of the most popular books written by one of the most phenomenal authors of our time. And it's also an introduction to a profoundly giving-centered man. The story of our guest giving after the earthquake that devastated Haiti and an unlikely friendship that blossomed there will absolutely leave you in awe. All right, my friends, open up those journals, open up those hearts, get ready to rock and roll because I'm honored and thrilled to introduce you to my friend, best-selling author, Mitch Album. Mitch Album, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Oh, it's a pleasure, John. Thanks for having me on the program. Mitch, we are familiar with a whole bunch of the characters that you write about. We know the Maury's, the Eddie's, and the athletes and the events of the day. Can you spend a little bit of time, though, talking about yourself? Where, where did you grow up, and what was life like for you as a kid? Sure. Uh, I grew up in the Philadelphia suburbs in southern New Jersey. Uh, I grew up very, you know, middle class, lower middle class, lived in a blue-collar kind of neighborhood, uh, 
went to a little public school where we walked to school and sat on each other's milk crates until the other person, the other kid came by, picked us up, and we, you know, we started with one, two, yes, three, and four. And we walked together, you know, back at a time when you were allowed to walk back and forth to school. And, uh, you know, went, went uh, grew up not really a sports fan. You know, I know that uh, people think because I became a sports writer and I think I was some kind of huge sports nut, but I was just your average sports fan. I did sell programs. My first job, I was 11 years old, and I was kind of a small kid at that age, and I was 11 years old, and I sold programs at Vet Stadium in Philadelphia with a bag that weighed more than I did, <laughs> uh, and it, they draped it over my shoulder and like 50 pounds. I only probably weighed 70, and, uh, and I walked up and down the steps. So that was my first indoctrination to sports, uh, was actually selling the programs of baseball games and football games, and I did that for several years. and. My dream was to be a musician, so all of the people who may know me as a writer uh, probably uh, think, you know, well, I probably wanted to do that from early on. I, I really didn't. I, mm. I never wrote anything when I was a kid. I never wrote in high school. I never wrote in college. I went to college in Boston where I met uh, Maury. I went to Brandeis University, and my whole goal there was also to be a musician, and I I lived over in Europe for a while, right when I got out as a musician, and then I came back to New York City and was and was planning to, you know, take the world by storm as a singer-songwriter, you know, producer kind of thing. And after falling flat in my face for a couple of years, I volunteered for a local newspaper while I was still working as a musician, mm -hmm. just to have something to do during the day, and found that I had an aptitude for writing, uh, unbeknownst to me. And uh, began to pursue that, and uh, ended up going back to graduate school for journalism, and and uh, got a job uh, accidentally in a sports department. wasn't looking to be a sports writer, and be, became a sports writer, uh, which is what I was most known for uh, for a number of years until I happened to see an old college professor of mine on television on the Nightline program talking about what it was like to die from a terrible disease called ALS. Went to start visiting him and wrote a book to pay for his medical bills. And that was the only reason Tuesdays with Maury ever came into existence. And from that point forward, my life took a complete turn. And uh, it, it's taken me to, you know, places and worlds and careers that I never would have imagined in books and movies and stage plays and things like that, and uh, none of which have to do with sports. So I, I guess to sum it up, I've, I've led a lot of different lives and lived in a lot of different pockets of the world. I've lived all over the United States. I've lived in different places in Europe. Uh, and traveled the world, and uh, you know, there's there's an old expression that you know you really know when you've when you've done a lot when you realize how little you've done, <laughs> and and uh, that's how I feel. You know, the world is a majestic, magical place to me, and uh, although I've gotten a chance to do more and see more of it than than many, I feel like I've only begun to you know explore all the amazing things there are in this life. So that brings us to where we are today. Man, you just gave us a snapshot of your life in uh, about a three-and-a-half-minute spiel. And, good, to know. Uh, good to know I can be summed up in three-and-a-half minutes. No way. If you, anyone ever wants to know, that's how long it takes to sum up my entire life. You missed almost all the real bullet points that I want to talk about, but you, you gave us a, a whisper of where the conversation's going to go today, and I, I appreciate that and your humility. You mentioned uh, that you were watching Nightline with Ted Koppel. I think it was on a Friday evening. Right. If we had more time, I would ask you, what is a busy guy doing home on a Friday evening watching Nightline? But we're not going to talk about that now. Did you recognize Maury's voice right away when you heard it? 
Well, the first voice I heard was actually Ted Koppel, and he said, uh, who is Maury Schwartz, mm. and why by the end of this evening are so many of you going to care about him? So was hearing the words Maury Schwartz that turned my you know, eye immediately, and then there was a picture of Maury, and uh, you know, an image is filming of him, and he, he was definitely the professor that I had come to know and love at college, and when I say professor, I know most people think, oh, I had a teacher you know, right. once for a semester. He was my everything. I mean, I took, I think, eight separate courses with him. I wrote my honors thesis with him. I, I, there wasn't, a, you know, more than two or three days would go by that I wouldn't sit with Maury, eat with Maury, see Maury. So he was a lot more than a professor to me. And, of course, I would recognize him instantly, but it was a very thin, sickly, yes. white-haired version of him that I was seeing. And he was clearly limited by this ALS disease that he had even then. And, of course, uh, that changed everything. Mitch, the, the first time you met him, I, if I read this properly, you weren't even sure you wanted to stick around in that class. Do you remember that? No, yeah. The first day I met him was my first day of college. Uh, I had signed up for this class ahead of time called, I guess it was like Intro to Sociology or something like that. And, <laughs> right. and you know, you sign up, you don't even get to college, you're already signed up for a class. <laughs> right. So I walked in and he taught these very small classes and I walked into his classroom and there were like nine kids in it. And I saw that there were nine kids. I said, whoa, nine kids, you know, if, if, if I cut the class, they'll know I'm not there. I wanted to go to like a class that had like a hundred kids. So if I slept in late, you know, that they wouldn't be mad at me. So I was actually going to drop the class because uh, you could do that. You know, you had like two weeks that you could just drop a class and switch to another one. And he began to call roll. And, uh, you know, one of the problems <laughs> when your last name begins with A is you, you don't get a lot of time. And so he called my name and uh, uh, I heard Mitchell album, you know, and I was like in the doorway. Yes. And I could have turned and walked away because he didn't know it was me. So he could just have been calling, you know, like Ferris Bueller, 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 Bueller. And he could have been saying album, album, album. Yes. I wouldn't, wouldn't have been there. But, uh, and, I, and I guarantee you, John, if I had walked down that hallway instead of going back into the classroom, you and I would not be That's here right. right now. So on such little things does, does a life turn. And, you know, I slid back in and he said, um, is it Mitch or Mitchell, which do you prefer? And you know, I'm sure it doesn't mean anything to your listeners, but to me, you know, I was kind of touched that he asked me that because I have one of those names that depending on what the teacher wants to call you that year, you're either Mitch or Mitchie or Mitchell or whatever. So I said, well, Mitch, my friend's called me Mitch. And he said, okay, Mitch it is, and Mitch. And I said, yeah. And he said, I hope one day you'll think of me mm. as your friend. And so I knew cutting the class was out of the question. <laughs> <laughs> I was done with that. But, um, you know, you could tell that you were in the, presence of a, of, a, of a really special guy, and that began our relationship. Well, your relationship lasted a lifetime. You wrote about it, of course, in Tuesdays with Maury. We know now about the conversations you had on those Tuesdays, but Mitch, I'm curious, you spent nine classes with this professor. Yeah. You know, outside of trying to get an A, what were you learning about life and learning and uh, what really mattered from him back then? Well, you know, I had grown up in a, as I say, sort of, you know, middle-class neighborhood where, where the goal was to do better than your parents and to go beyond what they had done and to achieve. And, you know, I had been, I was a good student, and, and my parents, I wanted to be a musician, and my parents said, yeah, that's all good, you're going to college. 
<laughs> it's like I didn't have a choice. And, and I came out of that generation where you're supposed to do what your parents want you to do, and they wanted me to be a lawyer or, you know, I think doctor was out of question because I was never very good at science, but something that was going to be very successful. My dad was in the world of business, not, you know, not, not high-end business, but, you know, uh, he went to where he was a middle-level executive. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think he wanted me to do the same. Maury was the first person that I had sort of met in my life who, who showed me that you could make your life about people and being concerned about people and even the field of sociology, the study of people. And, and you know, he had these discussion groups that he would do. He didn't watch television at night. He would have discussion groups about subjects going on in the world. And he, he was just very concerned about human growth and how you reach your potential. And these weren't things that were in my household when I was a kid. I didn't hear phrases like that. So what he really did was sort of open my eyes to, to say, hey, being a good person or being a whole person, being an you know, enlightened person, for want of a better word, although I'm not crazy about that word, uh, that's an accomplishment in and of itself. And no one had ever spoken to me like that before. That's the value of colleges, being exposed to these different kinds of ideas. So he really made me think that no matter what I chose to do as a profession, that wasn't going to define me as a person. There was this whole other track that you moved on that defined you as a person, your value system, what you did for your community, how involved you were with other people's lives. And, and it made me, I think, think in terms of being multidimensional instead of just get a job, get a career, do well. You spent nine classes learning that important lesson, and as a gift back, you gave them a briefcase. <laughs> and I think it, that's a fair trade, don't you? I, I think you overpaid personally, but but whatever. Who's to who's to say? Yeah. Yeah. He he says to you, Mitch, promise me you'll stay in touch, and you say, yeah, I promise. Yeah. And then, uh, do you remember how, what what he responds with? He said uh, he said you're one of the good ones. Promise me you'll stay in touch, and I said I will. And then he said, say it in a sentence, <laughs> like a, like an English teacher, you totally. know. Okay, Maury, I promise I'll stay in touch. And then I graduated, and. Uh, I never kept that promise. I broke it really every day and week and month and year uh, for 16 years until I saw him again on that TV show. And if you're wondering why, uh, well, there's no good reason why, but my reason was probably similar to a lot of your listeners. When you get out of college, your life just starts to take you on this path and your career starts to become the thing that you follow wherever it goes you go with it and i after failing at music uh for several years uh i got into writing and then i got into journalism and that began to sort of take off for me in a, in a very uh rocket fueled way mm-hmm. that music did not and so suddenly I, I elevated very quickly from a small newspaper in florida to a 25 i was hired as a columnist in Detroit, and I started traveling around the country and then around the world, and I was covering all the major sporting events, and then I got on a television show called the ESPN Sports Reporters, and so now I'm on TV, and then I got a radio program, so now I'm doing radio, and all of a sudden I was working 100 hours a week, uh, and there was no time to concern yourself with your past. There was only the future, because at that age and with that kind of ambition, you're always looking forward. You're never looking back. And so I, 
I just lost track of Maury. I didn't concern myself with him. I didn't think about it. And I, I kept burrowing ahead and success, 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 and more and more and more until basically God put him in front of me and said, "Literally, you're going to remember him, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. That changed everything. Mitch, for the four listeners currently who have not read the book Juices with Maury, give us a snapshot of what this book uh, is all about. Well, it's, it's basically about that first visit uh, after I saw him on television and realized I, you know, how guilty I felt. And I called him up, and I felt even more guilty after I called him because he remembered me far more than I remembered him. And I flew out to spend one afternoon with him. And I was, even though he was wheelchair-bound already and losing the ability, if you don't know Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS, it snips the connection between your brain and your rest of your body. And so you lose control of, of your limbs, your arms, your legs, your, your hands, your movement, all your body, everything. And yet your mind is perfectly intact throughout the whole process. And so you're, you're totally awake, you're totally aware, but you're, you're a husk. You can't do anything for yourself. And even though he was in the throes of this, he was so much more positive about his life than I was that I realized there was some big gap between us. And what did he know that I didn't know right. about life when you're really looking death in the face? And so I began to go back the next Tuesday and then the next Tuesday and the next Tuesday, thus the title Tuesdays with Maury. And we would discuss sort of the meaning of life as viewed through the eyes of a man who was dying. And uh, we recorded our conversations. He wanted me to write a thesis, uh, which I didn't have the heart to tell him I'm not enrolled anywhere. I don't know where I'm supposed to write a thesis. Uh, but uh, I got the idea when he told me how in debt he was for his uh, medical bills, and he didn't have the money to pay it, and he felt, I'm going to die, that's going to be terrible, and then my family's going to be stuck with these bills, and that's going to be twice as terrible, because they'll have to sell the house, and they'll have to do it. You know. So I, I decided maybe I could try to help him by writing a book, and uh, that's, we got turned down almost everywhere I went. Nobody wanted it. Everyone thought it would be boring. I was a sports writer. I wasn't capable of writing something like that. And, and uh, I kept pushing and pushing because I wanted to help him pay his bills. And we found the publisher a few weeks before he died. And uh, they agreed to give us the money up front so I could give it to him, which I did. I gave him the money. And um, mm. I thought it was over. You know, I thought, well, I'll just write this book and nobody will read it. But I'll write it, and I, I will have done one nice thing for this man who did so much for me. And the book came out a year, two years later, I think, and uh, it was hmm. a small little book. Nobody, it wasn't, didn't come out with a lot of fanfare. It didn't debut on a bestseller list or anything like that. It was just a small little book, and then people began to read it and hand it to one another and hand it to one another, and it began to grow, and Next thing I know, it's uh, it's starting to be everywhere, and Oprah Winfrey called, and she had read it and wanted to make a movie out of it, and it just got bigger and bigger, and now it's uh, the best-selling memoir in the history of memoirs, and it certainly wasn't because I intended it to be that way, but uh, I, I, I have learned the lesson that man plans and God laughs, you know? <laughs> and uh, so what you plan on things to be are rarely what they turn out, and apparently this was just meant to be. You've learned to think and reflect and uh, respond, I think, in the voice of Maury. How would he respond to a book of his life and death and the lessons within both 
selling what 15 million copies over 20 years in 45 different languages. How, how would he respond to that, Mitch? Well, he would probably say, uh, let me know if my head is getting swelled by this. Maury was always aware of not being, not being something that he didn't want to be. And he would tell you, well, you tell me if I'm sounding this or that. And if you told him that there were 15 million people reading his story and they were teaching it in schools in Australia and Japan and Switzerland, uh, <laughs> you know, part of him would be flattered because he's a teacher and teachers right. always want to reach people. But, uh, you know, part of him would also say, I need to be very humble about this because uh, it's it's not me. They're not celebrating me. These are messages that resonate he would probably be very analytical sociologically about it and say well it just goes to show you yes. how empty so many people's lives are that somebody like me and what i'm saying resonates so much with them uh, i think he realized when he was dying john that that he too felt enlightened by something that he didn't know before it wasn't just listen i've been saying the same stuff for years uh, how come you're just listening to me now it wasn't he said boy since i have faced death my whole perspective on this changes and this changes. Even his view on religion and, and God changed in the last two years of his life. So he was being enlightened as much as everybody else. And I think he would say, uh, as, as he once put it to me, I'm on the last great journey of life, and everyone wants to ask me, what am I packing? Mm. And, and uh, I think that's a little bit of, of how he would have viewed it. Mitch, you share a whole bunch of lessons you learned during those conversations. And I know this is a, almost an unfair question, but here it comes anyway. For you, what was the main lesson that he taught you in his life? Well, for me versus someone else, it's going to be different. You know, he had a lot to say about marriage, and people have talked to me about that. Uh, he had a lot to say about forgiveness, especially yes. forgiving everybody, everything. And, and people have talked to me about that. And these are all things that have resonated with me. Uh, the one that probably I've taken to heart the most and I've, I've found to be most true uh, came about when, uh, kind of by accident, when I noticed how many people were, were sort of coming in to try to cheer him up, <laughs> and then they would go into the office and the door would close. He would be lying there unable to move in his chair, and they would bring with them baby pictures and, 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 and accomplishments and all kinds of jokes or whatever they were going to do to cheer him up. And after an hour, they'd come out and they'd be crying, but they would be crying about, like, their job or their divorce or their love life or whatever. And they said, well, I wanted to try to cheer him up, but, you know, after about five minutes, he started cheering me up and asking me questions, and I told him more, and then he asked me more questions. I told him more. Next thing I know, I'm, like, crying and telling me all my problems, and he's, like, counseling me. And so I went in, and I said, I don't understand. You know, you're the one with the disease. Why, why are you spending all this time administering to everybody else? And... Why don't you just accept their, you know, their offerings, their sympathy? And he looked at me very strangely, and he said, uh, Mitch, why would I ever take from people like that? Taking makes me feel like I'm dying. Giving makes me feel like I'm living. Mm. And, uh, you know, that was a very profound, very profound uh, lesson for me. Uh, and I've never forgot that little phrase, giving makes me feel like I'm living. And as I have been blessed to have been, to, to have received so many things in life, I've had success and I've had acclaim and I've, I've had comfort and I've had, 
you know, relatively good health and all these things that, that so many other people in the world don't get a crack at, um, I really have found that what gives me the most satisfaction in life is giving. And it may sound cliched or hackneyed or whatever, but I, I can't help it. It's true. I don't ever feel as good uh, taking anything at this stage in my life as I do giving things away, giving my time, giving giving my energy or something. And, and Maury had it very, very right. And I think when you discover that formula, the earlier you discover it in life, the happier you're going to be because nothing is ever going to stop you from giving. Um, taking may be limited, you know, but, but right. giving, giving will never be. Mitch, a lot of people talk about uh, the joy of giving, but not a whole lot of folks back it up in their example of what they do with their money, what they do with their time, what they do with their efforts, their, their platform. You do, and there's so many examples we can share, and yet maybe my favorite is a little girl named Chica. I know you just celebrated the, the, the first anniversary of losing this little girl, but would, would you, in short, talk about Chica and your connection to her? Sure. Uh, so I went to Haiti in 2010, and uh, right after the terrible earthquake that devastated, you know, three per- killed 3% of their population and left 10% of the population homeless. And uh, I'll save you the long story, but I got involved with an orphanage there and uh, began to rebuild it and within six months had taken over its operations. And to this day, I'm in Haiti every month. I operate this orphanage. We have 47 children, beautiful, beautiful children, and kids without parents who were lost in either the earthquake or most recently the hurricane in Jeremy or just through poverty. And uh, they live there. They grow up there. They go to school there. We don't adopt any kids out. We're raising them. So I have a family of 47, basically. Mm. Uh, one of whom was this little girl named Chica, who was born three days after the earthquake, slept the third night of her life, actually slept out in the sugarcane fields because her little hut of a home had been destroyed. And for from three days old until eight, eight months old, she slept in the mud every night with her mother cradling her. She became a, a full-fledged orphan when she was about two. Uh, her mother died giving birth to her baby brother. Someone brought her to us. And uh, we began to raise her. When she was five years old, her face began to droop. We didn't know why. We thought it might be Bell's palsy or something weird like that. turned out it was something called DIPG, which is a four-letter word. Might as well mean death. (laughs) Uh, It's a brain tumor that is always fatal in the brain stem. Uh, At that point, we brought her north to America, and she became our daughter. And for two years, um, she lived with us. And uh, for every legal and, 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 and emotional way, she was our little girl, and we traveled the world uh, trying to find a cure for her. And because she couldn't go to school, she was with us every minute of those two years. And so it was really a very intense uh, class in parenting and parenting a sick child. And she brightened our lives in ways that are inexplicable uh, uh, to me and impossible for me to say even in a 12-hour broadcast, right. alone a couple minutes. but. I learned an awful lot about what it means to really give of yourself totally and the value of children in our lives and, uh, and, and what we're on earth for. And if I had to pick one anecdote of my time with her, she was a precocious, funny, stubborn, loud. Uh, she was perfect for my wife and me. I mean, she, she just made us laugh every minute of the day. And one time we were coloring, and I said I, <laughs> this was at the point where she couldn't walk anymore, and I needed to carry her from place to place, which you would think most kids would just be crushed by, but she seemed to enjoy the fact that I had to carry her everywhere. 
and uh, I, I, we were coloring, and I said, oh, I look at my watch, I said, I have to go. Uh, and, and she said, where? I said, well, Chica, I have to work. And she said, Mr. Mitch, I have to play. <laughs> and I said, well, I know you have to play, Chica, but this is my job. And she looked up from her crayons, and she said, no, it isn't. Your job is carrying me. Mm. And, of course, you know, that was, she said it in a little seven-year-old's way of talking, but, but she was right. That was my job, was to carry her. That's all of our jobs, is to carry children, specifically children who are, who are shortchanged and aren't given parents and, and are given illnesses. And um, it, it's a blessed responsibility. That's the best way I can put it. And we were honored. Uh, and I wrote a long, long, yes. long, long, long story about the experience and I think the last line of it, or pretty close to it, was, you know, we didn't lose a child, we were given one. And, and that's the way we have to look at it, and it still remains the, the greatest blessing of our lives. Mitch, I've read that long, 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 long story when it came out last June and wept like a baby for my hour-long plane ride while I, while I try to page my way through it. I'll link to it on our website, but um, I just encourage our listeners to check it out. It's one of the most beautiful, fatherly articles I've ever read. And, man, I want to thank you for authoring it, not just the words, but the example of it. It's, it's well, that's a extremely well done. I praise uh, adjective uh, fatherly, and uh, thank you for that. I, I, I really appreciate that. M- Mitch, we, I know we're nearing our, the time that we have together. We have seven rapid-fire questions that we ask every guest, and I want to ask you quickly— Number one, what is the best book that you've ever read? <laughs> Outside of the Bible, right? It has, you're talking about like a book book. Yeah. Uh, so we'll start with the Bible. And Is there a 1B? Uh, there's there a one B? book that I really love called uh, Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. It's the story of an old, old preacher who's uh, getting ready to die, and he's writing sort of a uh, letter to his very, very young son. He... he, he He's old, but he married a young woman, and they had a baby, and he's just telling them his thoughts on life, and it's just a beautifully written book, and it, it moves me no matter what page I open to. Tomorrow, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died, Mitch, at 103, leaving you with millions. What would you do with that newfound wealth? Give it away the same way I'm giving away the ones that I've earned. <laughs> That's easy. If your house caught fire and all living things, all living people are out, and you have an opportunity to sprint in and safely grab one thing, what's the item you would grab? All the pictures of me with Chica and and my wife. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach on a picture-perfect day and have a long conversation with anybody, living or dead, Mitch, who would you want to have that, that visit with? God. What's the first question you'd ask God? What don't we understand about why we suffer? Mm. If you've created, you and your, and your majesty have created the world in your image, there's a disconnect between the pain that we endure and the glory that we think we're going to enjoy after we die. Why? Why this step? And then heaven. You know, what, what are we not understanding about being here? That would be my question. And uh, I know this is always difficult to answer in particular for God, but what do you think the answer might sound a little bit like? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, I had an old rabbi who, who told me a great 
story about um, about how he imagined his conversation would go with God when he died if he led a good life. And he said, uh, and I'm, I'm kind of turning the tables on you because I asked him the same question. So he said, so if I get to heaven, I'm in my 90s, I die. I devoted my life to God. I devoted my life to his teachings. I, I would ask God, you know, so I've been a good person. I've followed your precepts. I've helped others. I've, I've, I've taught your word. So now I'm here in heaven. What's my reward? <laughs> and I said to him, so what do you think he would say? And he said, what reward? That's what you were supposed to do. <laughs> and I thought, okay, if the answer will probably be something along those lines. Like, what's suffering? What, what, this, this is the way the world is supposed to be so that maybe you appreciate the world to come or something. I don't know. Honestly, John, if I had the answer, I probably would have picked somebody else to sit down with and have that conversation because I would have already known what I needed to know. But, but that's my best guess. Well said. Three more questions and we're almost there. What's the best advice that anyone has ever given you? My mom said to me, uh, you're only going to have a few really good friends in your life, no matter how many people you're going to meet and how many friends you think you're going to have. People are going to disappoint you, and the number who will come through and be there always and for true is going to be shockingly small. And if you're lucky enough to have a couple of really good friends in your life, the only thing that you could do better than is to marry the best one. Mm. And uh, I, I think I've done both of those things. Congratulations. Yeah. I have a, my wife is fantastic and a blessing to me every day. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Oh, slow down. Uh, stop thinking that your life is measured by how much you accomplish. Uh, pay attention to how nice people are being to you and how less than nice you're being to them. Uh, recognize that you have a responsibility to the rest of the world, not just to yourself, mm-hmm. from your early days, and not just once you make it. Uh, and take a breath now and then, and go walk around and look around, because you're, uh, you know, that Billy Joel song, Vienna, you know? Yes. Slow down, you crazy child. You're so <laughs> ambitious for a juvenile. Yeah, yeah, and that was me. Mitch Album, it has been said that all great people, and I have the honor right now of interviewing one, that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? He learned, he loved, and he learned some more and tried to be better every day than he was the day before. Well, brother, you have learned, you have loved, you have become a little bit better every day than the day before you uh, can't be angry because you did not lose a child. You were given one, and you remind us all of that truth in our own lives. We're grateful for you, Mitch. You are an incredible writer and uh, teacher. So, Coach, thanks for spending some time with us today on Live Inspired. Well, that's, that's, it's an honor, John, and uh, you have a great podcast, and, and it's been my honor to be on it. I don't know if I'm worthy of some of the things that you've <laughs> been throwing at me. That's a lot of praise here, uh, but... but uh, but I sure have enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for having me on your program. We'll do it again, man. Have a great day. Thanks, Mitch. You too. Bye-bye. My friends, that was Mitch Album. This is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. Well, how cool was that? 
Tuesdays with Maury has been a favorite book of mine since I read it shortly after graduating college. It's a lifetime ago. I love knowing more about the special relationship between Mitch and Maury and how real it was. I love how relatable it was that Mitch said he was just too busy with life to even think about reconnecting with his favorite teacher, Maury, until one day he shows up on his television. And it also makes me wonder, is there someone in your life, my friends, that you've been just too busy to reconnect with? Is there someone in your life that you might look back and regret not staying in better touch with? Why not use this podcast from today as an impetus to reach out to that special someone and reconnect? It could be a family member, distant relative. It could be an old friend, a pastor, a rabbi, a teacher, an old coach. But use this episode today to reflect back on your life, back on your journey, back on the individuals who've shown up, who have stepped forward, who have guided you to live an even better life. Who is your Maury? Reach out to that person today. I have a feeling they are going to love to hear from you. And I have an absolute confidence in this one that you're going to love to reconnect with them. I know also that I'm going to be reflecting personally on Mitch's favorite takeaway from Maury. That taking makes me feel like dying. But giving, giving makes me feel like living. It's an awesome takeaway. I hope you heard that one loud and clear as well. My friends, to get all of my favorite moments from today's episode, check out the show notes at johnolearyinspires.com. And if you have not yet, please rate and review this podcast wherever, wherever you are listening to it. And also encourage your friends to listen too. It's an awesome way that we collectively can work together, can row together to ensure that more lives are elevated because of this message. So wherever you work or work out or worship or drink your coffee or hang out in life, tell your friends about the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Well, as always, I'll be joining you again with a new episode and a new guest next Thursday morning. I already know who the guest is. I already know what we're going to be talking about. And I'm already totally, totally fired up to share this guest with you. So my friends, for this time and until next time, this is your day. Live Inspired.